welcome to Inside Investing. I'm James Marley and I'm from Livewire. And this is Graham Han from Cufflinks. This week on the show, I'll be discussing a great talk by behavioural economist and author Dan Irelli and share my thoughts on the very controversial Banking Royal Commission, which was uh, announced late last week. I've picked out a few interesting points from a cracking presentation I attended at uh, hedge fund manager Regal Funds. I've also found an article from uh, one of our contributors who thinks that Australians are too negative on the outlook and we all need to cheer up a little bit. Now, as always, we'll give you insights into some of the upcoming features on both Livewire and Cufflinks. And we've uh, each picked out a quirky piece of news we've seen in the world of finance. So, James, why don't you kick us off? Great. Thanks, Graham. Well, the presentation that I'm going to talk to our listeners about today came from Regal Funds Management. Now, for people who may not be aware, they're one of the longest standing hedge funds in Australia, very well regarded, um, but quite private. So we don't often get to hear publicly their views around the investment universe. I went to a presentation from a number of their portfolio managers, and they talked around everything from Australian equities through to this Asian healthcare opportunity down to ways to get exposure to electric vehicles in, in, in Australia via the commodities companies. But one of the presentations I wanted to talk about, or the part that was really interesting to me, was on the Asian healthcare opportunity. Um, it's not in Australia, it's on our, on our doorstep. But I figured a lot of investors and probably a lot of readers of Cufflinks would have done really well out of a lot of the healthcare stocks in Australia. I'm thinking like things like CSL, yeah, there have been some Ramsey, been some, some, some great performers. And we often hear the narrative around the ageing population and, and people thinking about ways to get exposure to that. Dr Craig Colley, who was the analyst that presented uh, a set of slides on the opportunity in Asia, is a, he's ex-Macquarie and he's very well regarded as a specialist on healthcare. And it just painted a really interesting picture around if we expand our horizon beyond Australia, there's a huge opportunity in Asia. The, the market size for healthcare stocks in, in the Asia region is equivalent to the market capitalization of the entire ASX 200. Now, some of the things that were really interesting behind his case was that the, the GDP growth rate for the companies he was referring to in APAC is roughly double that of the USA and, and the UK. So obviously it's a, it's a fast growth re region. I don't think that would be a surprise to many people. But this, this next chart was the thing that really got me. The average spend um, per capita per annum in US dollars in countries like India, Thailand, China, and Malaysia is just a fraction, you know, under, well under $1,000 compared to in, the, in Australia where it's up around $6,000 per capita per year and the US where it's $9,000 per year. So obviously there's a huge amount of um, growth as the wealth effect moves through yeah. those countries. Growing middle class. Growing middle class for them to increase their spend. Now, so that's obviously interesting, an opportunity there as, the, as, the, as the, the wealth effect takes place there. But I thought the chart that really sort of blew my mind was the absolute numbers that are moving from uh, middle age into that 60 plus age group. Between 2015 to 2030, China is projected to add 150 million new people aged 60 plus and India an additional 74 million people aged 60 plus. Now to put that in context, in Australia that number is 2 million people. Right. And the point that Craig Colley was making was that you've got this 
uh, you know, quite a large pool of companies that are exposed to this absolutely huge demographic tailwind, um, which is going to be taking place not only the, as, as they spend more on healthcare, but just the sheer volume of people going through and the services that are going to be required to, to service that population. And I just thought it was really interesting just to put it in the context of, you know, the story and the narrative that we hear about the Australian companies and right on our doorstep, the opportunity and the size of the opportunity just, you know, Australia pales in comparison. Yeah, and at that age, a lot of people with money to spend as well. So that was my highlight presentation. Graeme, uh, do you want to take us through what you what you've been listening to and hearing in the past week? Yes, so last week I spent a couple of days at the ASFA conference. ASFA is the um, Australian Super Funds Association. This is the big industry funds, the big retail funds, and there were over 2,000 people there, so it was a, uh, they, they call it the biggest uh, pension conference in the world. And what I thought was impressive is, you know, some of these conferences can sometimes get a bit stodgy with, you know, presentations by fund managers and, and you know, you, you hear the same stories over and over again. But this one had a lot on sort of leading technology, a, an interesting session on artificial intelligence, but, but one I really enjoyed also on voice activated technology and how all of the big, big players, the Googles and Amazon and Apple, have recognized that these this technology these these sort of speaker looking devices that sit in your home or in the office no none of them are going to have a screen and none of them are going to have a keyboard or any way to input to them it's all voice activated stuff and the big breakthrough is that voice activation literally in the last six months has reached the level of um, the rec the recognition of voice that humans have so look, in the past, voice, voice activate, activation has been a pretty bad experience, but we're just on the cusp of that amazing technological change that we see from time to time where voice comes into play. And three, four years from now, the sort of devices that we have in our home and office will be completely different, much like we've adopted smartphones as, our, as, our, um, as a way of life. But look, the most interesting presentation was by um, this behavioral economist, uh, Dan um, Arelli, and he talked about um, a lot of the ways that people make decisions about managing their money and how, how asking them questions can lead to the result. They did a survey of a few thousand people, for example, and said, what percentage of your final year's salary do you think you'll need in retirement? And most people answered 70 to 75%. But then when they asked people, where does that number come from? No one could tell them. It's just a number that people quote. So they started to dig a bit deeper and they analyzed the, the money that people actually thought they would be spending in retirement. And the average outcome was 130% of final income. And how could it be more? And he said, there's a, there's a few things here. People start to travel a lot more. Um, they spend a lot more on the health. But he had this great line is uh, that you're, you're free to spend all day at work without having to pay. He says, but once you're at home, you start to do things that cost, cost money. Um, so look, I obviously I can't go into everything that he uh, said, but he talked about what he called uh, the intention action gap. And, and he asked the audience, how many uh, of you are gonna exercise more next year? 
and everyone has the intention to do it but when next year it comes and it's the same about saving people know they need to save for retirement they're always going to save uh, more next year but people don't understand the present-day implications of the amount of money that they that they spend uh, now so he he left us with two points he said the sort of questions that that financial advisors ask the uh, clients are totally inappropriate when when you have a conversation about what's your risk appetite no one knows the answer to that we've discussed that um, um, before um, and people do not know how much money they need until you really drill into it so financial advice should be about understanding people's lives and how they spend money not about risk appetite anyway good to get those sort of behavioral uh, behavioral insights yeah it's the I think one of the things that's common there is all of these questions are quite uncomfortable to answer because you generally know that you're not doing enough. That's right. Whether it's exercise or saving money or planning and, and the tendency is to avoid bad news um, and, and to skim over it. Now, during the week, the really big piece of news was that the government has announced a, a banking royal commission. Um, the banks came to the table and said, let's, let's get rolling with this. That's right. Graham, you've put down your thoughts on some of the key takeaways from what we know so far. Do you want to talk us through your article? Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, look, this was a, obviously a fascinating uh, announcement. The, the first thing that hit me was the title of it. Now, everyone has been calling for a banking royal commission. And even now, the media is saying, finally, a banking royal commission has been called. But that's actually not what it is. The full title is the Royal Commission into Misconduct in Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services. And there's a lot of references in there to superannuation. Um, now, I'm personally, I don't think this, this Royal Commission is a good idea. I've written an article in the past on 10 reasons not to hold a Bank Royal um, Commission, which we will attach uh, below this um, podcast. And there's, a, there's already sort of signs that within the superannuation industry, there's sort of disappointment that they are being uh, targeted. And you have commentary in the market because, where, for example, SMSFs have been deliberately left out of the terms of reference. So when the SMSF Association comments, they say, we think this is a really good thing, <laughs> okay? But then when the, it's so pointed to, towards superannuation, then people like ASFA, the Association of Superannuation Funds, they say that this is, uh, to, to, to quote them, we are disappointed the government has included superannuation in the scope of the Royal um, Commission. And the problem is that throughout 2018, I think there'll be a lot of arguments among the superannuation industry about what the Commission is finding, and that's just not going to help the reputation of super. But let me just focus a little bit on the terms of reference, um, which um, without wanting to bore anyone, let me just show how difficult this is going to be. Um, the instructions to the commissioner are not to inquire into um, macroprudential policy. Now, what is macroprudential policy? It's policy and regulation which can have widespread implications for the financial system. So I look at that and say, wait a minute, the Commission's been told not to inquire into matters which have widespread implications for the financial system. I mean, I, I just don't get what that means, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, good luck to uh, Mr. Hayne. 
and yet they are instructed to talk about to to look into culture now I don't know about you James but everywhere I've worked we've struggled with trying to define what is culture and they've also been um, asked to look at whether behavior and business activity conforms with community standards now what's community standards in the finance industry a lot of people want the banks to make profits because it it's a good it's part of their investing so look 2018, um, it's only got a year to report. It's going to be a, a big challenge for the commissioner and, and his team. Graham, if we just take it back a, a step on, on the banks, what do you think is, what do you think 2018 happens? Are we going to have news headlines around this Royal Commission the whole year? The cloud remains over the head of the banks. It's been a pretty rough period for bank investors. There hasn't been much progress. Do you think that this does anything to help that? Look, the, the financials and the telcos were the worst, have been the worst performing sectors in the ASX in, in 2017. And we are facing a year now of almost nightly news of, of um, announcements which are just not going to help the industry. I don't see us coming out of this with sort of some sort of greater trust um, that is going to be somehow um, delivered. And um, look, uh, what's the recommendations going to be? There should be greater government governance, there should be greater oversight, there should be more prudential control. Are any of those things good for innovation and getting the banks outside of, of the sort of a few core competencies? Uh, so look, I, I think that the, the banks, the, the strong businesses, they'll continue to be good businesses. I don't see this as, as upside though. But um, so, James, look, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go. Let's let's go a bit more upbeat. You've been talking to someone who who thinks we're too pessimistic. Yeah, Miles Stoudy from the Global Value Fund. And they're looking to buy businesses that are trading at a discount to their NTA or their you know to their assets. And he's based in London. And he comes out to Australia usually twice a year. And I think he has a really interesting perspective. And I love hearing from him when he comes out because he says, this is what I see in Australia, um, having had that distance. And I think, you know, if you, when you go on holidays, you get a, a bit of a break from Australia and you get to see some of the good things and a bit of change. So yeah. it's quite refreshing to get his views. Um, and he has been doing a, a roadshow around Australia. And, and the comment that he made in this, this article was that he was just blown away by how pessimistic so many investors were in, a, in Australia. And that the narrative, the common narrative that he was encountering was that most people believe that this rally is unsustainable, valuations are through the roof, that there's a big blow off going off and, and everyone should be ready for a big you know, correction. Right. And he pointed to a number of points he felt supported the, the, the rally that's been taking place in, in risk assets and, and he felt like it was completely sustainable and justified that things had, have been going quite well. First of all, he, he said in Europe, things are really coming together after what's been a really uncertain period there. So, so growth is going really nicely over in, 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 um, in Europe. The US economy continues to, to gather steam and to gather pace. And then the third point that he raised was that despite everyone expecting China to, to slow down quite dramatically and has, obviously has a big impact for Australia, the Chinese economy is, is surpassing even their own expectations. So he, he outlined those factors as being as being quite interesting one of the things that he also saw is that, that companies are investing in themselves for the future and so that 
corporates are out there reinvesting in their own businesses, which he believes was a really, um, a really positive sign. Um, and he actually quoted the survey that was run via Cufflinks not that long ago around how people were feeling about the markets and, and that two-thirds of your readership was actually quite bearish on, yeah. on things. And he yeah. used that as a bit of a, a, a piece of evidence to suggest that um, you know, there's this quite negative narrative taking place down here in Australia. So, um, and it was interesting when, when he said no one's talking about this, I went back and three of, there's three uh, presentations that I've attended recently that I quoted the Ashok Jacob one in one of our early podcasts. Um, uh, Troy Angus from Paradise also said this is the best period of global synchronised growth that he's seen in a decade. So there's definitely, Miles is not alone, there's a few fund managers out there that are saying, things are pretty good, we should, we should get on board this. So right. for all those readers out there that are feeling a bit gloomy, maybe, maybe take the glass half full. <laughs> okay, let's be, let's be more optimistic. And look, on, on that note also, we've got a, a good paper in Cufflinks this week uh, from uh, Jim Power from Martin Curry, the fund managers who are part of the Leg Mason group. And he's just been over to the US attending some uh, global retail conferences and he's particularly focusing on the implications of Amazon. Now, James, we were talking earlier about Amazon uh, just opening this week, uh, opening its website in, in Australia. What's interesting about this piece is that he gets quite specific about which industries have done well in the US and which ones are struggling. He quotes Walmart and Best Buy as people who've uh, eventually, maybe a little slowly to the game, responded quite well. And he also outlines uh, six tools that um, you can use to judge whether certain retailers are likely to do well. Um, he says it's not too late to respond, but he gives the example of the fact that Amazon changes its price during the day, and it took other competitors a, a while to realize that. But one of these tools that I, I really like is, is, he calls, making the most of your existing infrastructure. Because the issue that Amazon will have is what they call the, the last mile, you know, the, the delivery of it to your doorstep. And let's face it, Sydney traffic is pretty bad, so you know there's another issue there. But if you've got an, in, an existing store network, then you should be able to compete with that sort of last mile delivery um, against, against Amazon. Um, the final point that he, he makes is worth noting, particularly the Australian market, is that supermarkets generally are well placed to compete because groceries and fresh food notwithstanding um, the, buy, the purchase of whole food, people still like to go and do their grocery shopping and, 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 feed, and, and see the, the food they're buying. So I think it's a little bit more upbeat and we tend to be a bit pessimistic about the retail outlook here. Well, it um, ties in with a few of the, the points that I've got coming up in something quirky because I think okay. there's definitely a more balanced narrative starting to appear around, yes, there are some negative impacts for some companies, but there's also going to be some winners as well. So James, you've been running this good uh, profile on CIOs. Who have you got coming up? Uh, the one we're releasing on Saturday is with Stephen Ng, and he is the portfolio manager and one of the founders of Ophir Asset Management. And Ophir, um, for reads of Cufflinks, they may be familiar with Chris Cuff's Third Link Growth Fund, and they're one of the fund managers that 
Chris has actually selected to participate in that charitable fund, so yeah. they've got his tick of approval. They've been going for five years and um, are the best performing fund manager for their segment over that period. Mm-hmm. So the returns are pretty phenomenal at 35% per annum. So <laughs> um, they've got quite a job to keep that up. Um, but Stephen came in and sat down with me. We spent you know 25 minutes talking about investing in growth stocks and um, people may recall that this time last year, a lot of those high performing names had a real um, shaky period. There was a big drawdown in, in small caps and emerging companies. So we talked a bit about that. He talked about one stock that he thinks is actually a real winner from um, Amazon coming to town and, and showed the second derivative of, of those impacts. And yeah, so it's sort of a, a bit of a deep dive with a really credible fund manager. It'll be released uh, on Saturday coming up this week. And definitely, I think, you know, a really a really interesting deep dive with, with someone that's um, clearly very focused and, and, and quite passionate about investing. So we, we've got to uh, listen to the video before we know the company, uh, do you? Is that, is do that... people want I think, like, <laughs> well, the, the company that he talked about is Afterpay Touch. Oh, okay. Yep. And if people are out there buying, doing online, um, you know, shopping for, for their kids or whatever it might be, you'll see as you check out, there is the option to use Afterpay, which allows you to effectively pay in a lay-by style instalments at no cost to the consumer. And what he's saying is that they've been out talking to all of these retailers that are using Afterpay as part of their checkout process, and that not only are they using the service, it's increasing the sales volume that's going through their stores. Um, And he said the retailers are absolutely loving this service. Um, They've done a deal with an airline now, so you can do your airline tickets in instalments, and this company is, Mm. is taking off really really quickly and it's this next derivative um you know online shopping yes it can be disruptive but there are companies that are emerging that are helping existing players adapt yeah and they are it's now helping them energize and reinvigorate their businesses so after pay touch apt is the code if people want to have a look up on it he'll give us the deep dive on saturday okay that'd be worth listening to graham what have you got coming up next week on cufflinks yeah we've got it a short paper from Ashley Owen of Stanford Brown, and he's just giving a bit of a warning about IPOs and what, what he calls information asymmetry. He, we, we do get sort of excited when we read about IPOs, as if we're getting in on the ground floor. But you really have to ask your, yourself every time, why is the person selling? Because as Ash, Ashley says, the person who's selling knows a heck of a lot more about that business than, than the buyer does. And what is the reason for the, for the sale? Now, there's obviously been some big success stories and some big uh, failures. The ones uh, that we all know about where it was really dressed up for sale, the private equity ones, uh, you know, Meyer and Dick Smith um, were, you know, putting Jen- Jennifer Hawkins on the cover of, of Meyer. You know, what do people think they were buying um, in a sector that, is, that was, was really struggling and and the shares have done quite poorly. Um, he also has an interesting counter to some of the things that Livewire has been publishing about founder companies. Um, he quotes um, the floats of Rams, um, Kerr Nielsen floating platinum, and John McGrath quoting McGrath real estate. And these people absolutely pick the top of the market, right? His argument being, you know, John McGrath knows more about real estate than anybody. 
Um, if he's a seller, why would you be a buyer? And he's put in an interesting chart about when both Rams and McGrath sold and how the uh, number of house sales per quarter fell away after both of those. And of course, Kerr Nielsen, I mean, I'm not saying Kerr knew the market was about to peak, but he did float in 2007 and we, we know what happened after that. Um, and I must say, I recently went into an IPO myself, one called Auto Solutions, the ASX code four, four wheel drive. Um, and that was, has been an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> um, uh, fortunately, I didn't put very much into it, but I thought this the business idea of com combining four wheel drive retail auto distribution outlets into a, a bigger conglomerate sounded like a good idea that almost well, since a, the day there's a floated. There with, with our corporation. Exactly. Which has been an absolutely cracking stock. A great business, yeah. And so it floated at a, a dollar last year, went, uh, there's immediately management turmoil. When, I'm, not a, I'm not a stock analyst, it went to 20 cents. And now they've just uh, um, agreed to have a, to have a takeover at 35 cents. So, you know, that business is going to cease to exist all in the course of a year. Mm -hmm. So really, people need to ask themselves uh, the question, why is the person, why is there a sale happening here? Yeah, I think it's the, it's, um, there's a lot, there are a lot of floats coming to market right now, a lot of smaller ones. So it's probably a timely reminder just to go and make sure you open the PDF and have a look what's under the bonnet. No yeah. pun intended, by the way, there. <laughs> Okay, with with no pun intended, uh, James, tell us about your, your quirky bit. Well, I couldn't help but bring along a little Amazon tale, given that Amazon has launched this week. And I wanted to do, as I was talking, say, make a point about the fact that there are some winners and some losers. The first one I want to say, talk about is um, the, the tale of a retailer. We, we asked some fund managers who they thought was most likely to go bust as a result of Amazon. Right. And the name that came up was Godfrey's, which people may remember was a vacuum cleaner um, manufacturer and distributor. Godfrey's have just gone through their fourth CEO. Um, and we actually, when the article was penned on Livewire, um, it was um, suggested that they, they'd been through three CEOs in the course of a year. And within the three days between when it was went live and, and we received it and went live, we had to update that to be the fourth. Right. So. That's an example of the kind of businesses, those sorts of household goods that are really likely to be disrupted by Amazon. And just an example, and, and um, you know, you never want to see people go bust, but that's um, you know just a, a, a real real life example. Investors being left in a bit of a vacuum there, haven't they? <laughs> that business sucks. <laughs> and on the flip side, a company called GetSwift, which I don't know too much about, but what they do do, and you talked about this this last mile logistics mm. they provide an app that allows companies to use their um their tr their tracking to work out where their goods are when it comes to delivery right. so if you think about the domino's pizza app you know people use that to, to know when their pizza is going to arrive it's effectively providing that technology and that software and that interface and allowing any business to plug into that and so that last mile logistics and that traffic tracking can be fulfilled and just this week, the company announced that they have signed a deal with Amazon. Now it's a, a minnow on the Australian market, but the shares rose 85% in a single day. And the code on that one is, is GSW. That, that is not an endorsement of the stock. It is just a, an interesting story. But, you know, again, showing how that second derivative of the, yeah, the arrival exactly. of Amazon. Winners and losers. Yeah. Graham, what was your quirky story for the week? 
Well, at this ASFO conference, the former Deputy Prime Minister and most recently our, um, the Australian Ambassador in New York, Kim Beasley, gave a talk. And I was really surprised that mainstream media didn't pick up what he talked about. Um, he said that you know, the, the US, to use his words, is locked and loaded for a war against North Korea and that Trump is willing to try sanctions and soft diplomacy, but that he's ready to, to quote him again, pull the trigger if provoked. It was sort of upping the ante to this sort of black swan event that we currently seem to be quite relaxed about because there's no volatility in the market. But look, on the more quirky theme, he told a story about the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, visiting Washington. And he said that he was um, deeply worried because so many of Tony Abbott's policies on, on, on social policy, environment or whatever was different than Barack Obama. Um, so he diligently prepared some briefing notes, but Abbott turned up and said, look, I'm not interested. He actually said, it's all bullshit, don't worry about it. I'm not going to use any of this stuff. So they walk into the Oval Office this is Beasley saying, and there's Obama, the Vice President, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor. And Beasley said, oh my God, you know, we're in for a belting here. And, and Obama gives this very erudite, pointed speech with all sorts of interesting uh, observations about Australian and US relationships. And then he hands over to Tony Abbott. And Tony Abbott says, I don't usually have a list of, I don't actually have a list of complaints. I know most people who come into this office have a list of complaints. I've got nothing to complain about. Others might come um, to you with problems. I don't want anything from you. I want to say one thing. If you're about to, you're about to get into a lot of trouble in the Middle East. And when you do, I want you to understand we're going to be with you and we're going to be with you in numbers. And everyone was in the room was sort of pretty um, gobsmacked at that. But then the punchline from Beasley said that for, very, for many months afterwards, it was reported back from him that whenever Obama was frustrated by various opponents or problems that he had, domestic or international, he would say, what we need is more Tony Abbott's. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tony yeah. Abbott would be pleased to hear that. He'd be very pleased to hear someone. I'm not sure Malcolm Turnbull would agree. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, Kim, Kim Beasley wasn't that keen either, but um, that was a good story. Good one to finish up on. Well, Graham, that wraps up our podcast for the week. I'd like to thank all the listeners who have tuned in to Inside Investing. Links to the articles that Graham and I have discussed will be outlined below the podcast on the article you're looking at today. And yes, check both the Cufflinks and Livewire websites for other great um, content. And you know, we encourage you to read the full content of things that we're just summarising. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love you to send it to a friend or share on social media. Thanks, James. Thanks, Graham. Cheers. Mm.